Hello everybody, this is Ray Dagham from STEP and welcome to this episode of Meta Conversations where I interview successful startup founders in or from emerging markets. If you enjoy listening and find it useful, you can follow the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or watch the video version on stepplus.stepconference.com and let's get started. All right. Mo, Sam, thanks for joining uh, the podcast. Great to have you guys uh, join the show. Uh, first of all, uh, would like if you can start by, by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Mo, you're the co-founder and CEO of Kitopi. Sam, you're the, the CTO and, and co-founder of Kitopi. So how do you guys meet? How do you get started? Uh, tell us the whole story. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having us here. We're pretty excited to to do this. We Sam and I don't do joint uh, podcasts. I think this was it's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to it. So, um, so yeah, my, my quick background on myself. I uh, in, prior to Kitopi, I co-founded another company called BNB. We were in the confectionery space um, and scaled that business up uh, over eight years. Sold it uh, to private equity and then started angel investing, uh, um, and and stumbled upon this idea and uh, and decided to uh, myself and, and Sam and a couple other our friends decided to come and, and venture to this and, and do this full time. So that's my story, Sam. Yeah, so I'm Sam. Um, I, I, uh, I from Dubai. I've been living here since '96. Um, um, my background is systems, information systems. Um, I was in California, came back in 2009, um, worked at a family architecture and engineering company based here in Dubai, really worked on the system side of things for, for a number of years. 2012, when the startup ecosystem was developing in the UAE, um, I founded a series of startups, mainly in the e-commerce space, uh, some successes, lots of failures, until uh, I joined uh, forces with Moody when he came up with what became what was a radical idea at the time, which ultimately became Kitopi in uh, 2017. Sam, I think we had you on on uh, another show on during the step conference on stage, and we had you smash a fax machine machine with with a with a baseball bat. Remember, I think that was the- yeah, yeah that, that was definitely good therapy. I think you guys read my LinkedIn profile, saw my passion towards fax machines. But uh, yeah, very- we're not gonna have as much fun here today. No fax machine smashing. <laughs> yeah, I think you, you mentioned that in your in your bio, right? Among among other things, that you hate fax machines. Do you- yeah, it was one of my pet peeves. So I'm assuming, did you ever have to get a fax machine number for Kitopi? You guys have I don't any fax machines. You won't find a fax machine in Katopia. I promise you that. <laughs> I tried. I tried. Just and, and you hate printers as well. Yeah, I, heard, I read that you hate printing paper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything to do with the inefficiencies, you know, and uh, uh, definitely very passionate about digitalizing the workplace. Awesome. So let's start with talking a little bit about Kitopi. How, how does the Kitopi model differ differ from from other uh, food aggregators, from other cloud kitchens like uh, uh, Travis's ex Uber CEO and founder uh, model? Uh, how, how does it stand? Out? How is it different as a, as a model? Well, so uh, think of the cloud kitchen space to have three layers. So three layers of that. So the first layer, uh, and which is kind of the, the most uh, popular layer, which is the real estate. There's a lot of people doing that. So they build out kitchens and lease them out. 
to restaurants operating. And that is a you know a good take on real estate. We're slowly seeing that begin being similar to what happened. In the second layer of the stack are, are uh, people building delivery which uh, so you have a lot of players attempting to do this on a global level. These are delivery-only brands. Uh, some people call them dark kitchens, ghost kitchens, and it's multiple variants of these names. Uh, and the reality is they are focused on uh, building the most efficient set of brands for the delivery world. We are not on that stack either. And the third layer of the stack is where we play in, uh, which is think of it as a managed kitchen as a service. So imagine you are a brand in New York. You want to, you know, you want to scale up to Dubai or any of the cities we, we operate in. You would license your brand out to us. We would operate on your behalf. Think of it as franchising 2.0. So we were a platform that enables you to scale up in any one of the sites we operate in by cooking and delivering on your behalf. So if a restaurant, uh, can you give me an example of a restaurant that you've, you've achieved a success that, that you got on uh, as a customer? And what was the process for them? And what were the results for them? What, what model did they shift from originally? So if it's an existing restaurant and you have usually a restaurant brand that comes in. So we, so we have 200 restaurant partners and they're all successful in their different ways. Uh, and we have multiple use cases. We have a restaurant that is in New York, Nathan's Famous, for example, that wants to operate in the uh, Middle East. So that's a use case where they, we help them scale up by licensing their brand and giving them access to a market they weren't in. Another use case is uh, a brand that is in one part of town but not covering another part of town. Papa John's is an example. And we would give them access to another part of the city, right? Still on the expansion. And then there's a, a third use case, which is, you know, brands that, um, you know, don't doesn't make economic sense for them to operate in their existing site. And so given that the delivery revenues are a larger contributor now to their total revenue, um, it just doesn't make economic sense to a lot of restaurants to operate under that landscape. So the third use case is brands who want to just shut down shop and move that entire business out to us. And we would operate in their behalf. And then the fourth, which is kind of the more recent and, and developing super fast is restaurants that don't typically or brands that don't typically operate in a normal restaurant format so so think of an influencer think think of what happened in beauty uh when you know when when influencers started building their own beauty lines we see that happening in the food space and those are not you know not brand builders who typically own restaurants or build restaurants but those are brands those are those are brand owners who understand how to acquire users very efficiently um, and build a brand persona around them so that's kind of the latest use case you see. And can you tell us a little bit about the operational part of Kitopi, the, the, the kitchen as the product, and then uh, Sam can share more about the, the, the tech side, where the tech side comes into that. Uh, so essentially, what's what's your, what do you consider is, is the, the, the essence of your product as a whole? Is it the kitchen? Is it the uh, process, the efficiency? Is it the tech? What, which part and how do these work together? It's that end-to-end -end service that we offer the restaurant, right? So we help restaurants scale. That's very simple, right? So you're a restaurant, we're not just giving you software, we're not just giving you infrastructure, we're, not, we're allowing you to scale by taking your end-to-end, -end, giving an end-to-end -end solution. 
which is what makes us very different to others. There's a lot of people giving one piece of that puzzle. We think that the ecosystem comes in together. I mean, what, if you think about the problem we're trying to solve, right? From a customer perspective, they get food faster. They get food, customer and consumer, right? They get food faster. They get the right selection in all different parts of town. Um, and, and, and they get it within the right, um, you know, if you ordered uh, a salad and a, uh, a main course, you want to make sure that you didn't forget the sauce, you didn't forget the main course, so you want to make sure that the accuracy rate is pretty high. So, so what we offer is a solution to that from a customer perspective. From a brand perspective, we give you the ability to scale up super fast. You don't have to think about the whole solution, you license your brand out to us, we take you live within two weeks. And then if you think about it from an aggregator perspective, which is kind of completing um, the whole ecosystem, and what I mean by aggregator, I mean, you know, the food tech uh, marketplace and, and, and aggregators, the likes of Uber Eats and Deliveroo, the likes. What we offer them is the ability to work with a very innovative uh, uh, operator that allows them to, to you know, reduce their rider waiting time. Um, it allows them to, pay, you know, so, so in essence, we're telling them you can deliver more orders per hour with your riders, with us, than with someone else. Why? Because of our software, which Sam can kind of elaborate on later on. And I do think that, you know, food, the cost of delivery is the largest cost to an aggregator. And if you help them cut that cost down by half, you just save them a lot of money. And, you're, and that's how you kind of make the whole ecosystem work very efficiently. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get to the uh, unit economics a little bit more details later on. But Sam, on the tech side, where does the tech side come in? Can you explain like your product from the tech point of view in a bit more detail? Yeah, absolutely. Just to sort of elaborate. So our restaurants, the partners that entrust us with their brand, they're tapping into that infrastructure, that infrastructure of supply chain, of smart kitchens, of, of uh, cooks in the kitchen. And our tech sits in the heart of that. It enables us to do what we do. It's essentially what we call SCOS, our smart kitchen operating system. And it's the operating system that powers our kitchens. It handles the end-to-end -end order experience. So everything to do when we receive the order, we route it to the kitchen closest to the consumer. We route it to the correct cook in the kitchen based on the actual order item and everything in between all the way to the, to the hands of the consumer. It's essentially geared to simplify the operations to enhance the operational efficiencies, but most importantly, it's geared towards enhancing the consumer experience. Oh. And uh, when you got started, was how did that tech develop from when you got started till today uh, in comparison? So, I mean, something like Ketopia, is, and, and that's something that's in general is a, is a cash intensive uh, business, right? So you guys have raised uh, tens of millions of dollars a day to date. You're one of the most funded startups. But when you start uh, such a business, where do you start first? Do you start and that's, a, that's definitely a very, very good question. And uh, I'd, love, I'd definitely love to share our learnings there. Um, uh, when we started January 2018, we, we conceptualized the idea around mid-2017 and we, we set to launch by January 2018 in our first kitchen in, in Dubai, in Al-Quds. And uh, that date was not going to change. We were launching January 2018. So I did what most people would do, see what software and systems are available off the shelf to, to get up and going. And I must have sat with every POS provider you can imagine, you know, from NCR to Partex to Squirrel to, to all the main POS systems that, that have been around for ages in, in the restaurant space. And I kept hitting a roadblock. That roadblock 
was essentially first all their functionality, their core features was was primarily geared towards dining for very good reason because that's that's been the popular demand for the longest time. Um, so when it came to delivery orders, there is a different user flow in that journey. The delivery orders are are packaged, for example. There there's drivers involved that are that are an essential part to the experience. We had a second layer of complexity to what was already infancy, a, a very early stage of, of cloud kitchen technology. Our second complexity was uh, multiple brands in a single kitchen, right? Where a cook can even cook across multiple different brands. That was an extremely unconventional scenario. That said, we spoke to a lot of tech, a lot of startup POSs and techs, and I did what I necessarily do in a situation like that. We practically begged them to add this to their feature wish list, uh, to their feature roadmaps. And we kept getting a, you know, this is very an unusual request. It's very tailored to your needs. So it's a, it's a, and it's not a popular requirement. So long story cut short, we ended up using what was essentially the best of the worst. And uh, we started with it. We had to do a lot of hacking to sort of provide our core MVP service. An example of what that looked like um, in, within our kitchens, we would have these, these screens called KDS screens, kitchen display screens, which was essentially where the cook would see what he needs to prepare. We would have a separate browser for every single brand. So if you think about all the browsers you have, Chrome was one brand, Mozilla was another brand, Internet Explorer, try 22 browsers for 22 brands. Uh, if I heard someone was building a startup browser, I'd be the first person there, you know, so that we can actually launch another brand. We had to do a lot of unconventional hacks and that was fine. It took us from A to B. Our first couple of kitchens, we were able to, to swim in those waters. But the moment we started to expand and we started um, onboarding a lot more brands, and especially when we started crossing borders to other cities, it wasn't sustainable. And it quickly became clear in the first year that if we don't build out our own tailored tech stack geared towards cloud kitchens, um, uh, we, were, we were not going to be able to deliver the best consumer experience. Um, so by the end of the year, we had made a decision to build out our own tech stack and, and we started and we took it from there. So how long have you been now into your, your own tech stack? Is everything, of the, the core tech now is, is Kitopi stack, right? Eh? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's been a, uh, roughly two years. And from when you shifted to your own tech stack, one big issue among a lot of technical co-founders and CTOs is then you know, how do you prioritize your roadmap and your features on all the things that you wanted to do when, you know, you're asking the third party vendors to do before and then suddenly in your hand, but you have limited resource time to do that. How, what's your methodology to uh, prioritizing features uh, that go into your roadmap? Yeah, so you always go based on the most severe pain points, right? And, and one of the good things that came out of using uh, the tech that was out there was we really got to understand what we valued and what we didn't and, and where our, our most fundamental pain points were. And uh, with the speed that we were growing, it quickly became clear what components we needed to work on first, otherwise we wouldn't be able to grow, right? And we were really focusing on the enabling uh, foundations to begin with. For example, one of the most fundamental features, a feature that is, is, is one of our most popular um, use cases today is the elasticity of menus within a, within within an actual kitchen. So we were still trying to figure out what was the right layout, what was the right floor plan in the kitchen. 
meaning we were changing things a lot. You know, we, we had several generations of, of, of designs in the kitchen and each one of them required a substantial amount of changes on the systems that we were already using before we built out our own tech stack. So when you know what you don't know, and we knew that we didn't have the most efficient, we weren't sure what the most efficient design was in the kitchen. What we did was we designed for elasticity. We ensured that, that, that we were able to adjust the workflows of, of menu items within the kitchens to ensure that we can be agile and we can change the, uh, our working methodology in a way that doesn't become a bottleneck. So for example, like a Coke, a workflow for a Coke is just you pack it and then you dispatch it. But a burger, for example, there's a preparation, then a pack, and then a dispatch. That's a three, that's a three-step workflow. Those sort of elasticities were fundamentals in the very beginning when we were still trying to figure out what was the, the sort of methodology we were going to be working in. So your tech essentially was building built around uh, changes that could happen in your kitchen, in your kitchen. Yeah. This, this is one of the main impacts. We essentially embedded elasticity in the core components. Now, embedding too much elasticity into your tech is also a bad thing. It affects usability. So we really had to find out that the kitchen was the most dynamic component of our business, and we created an elastic model around that kitchen. Uh, more to talk about the the kitchen design, and, and uh, yeah, I know you have multiple generations of, of kitchens. Uh, What's your approach within that compared to like other industry peers and globally? Uh, what best practices do you follow? What learnings have you seen from from the space? I mean, yeah, kitchen design is is core to 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 speed, right? And efficiency. And you know, the, if you've seen the the founder, the McDonald's movie. Uh, it's a lot about the whole like kitchen design when they drew it out and the tennis court and how you know things move around. Uh, have you been drawing around um, kitchens over and over in, in tennis courts, maybe? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Again, if you think about it, the way we approach building a kitchen starts with, um, it starts with what does a customer want, right? So let's go with a part of town in Dubai called Dubai Marina. What do customers in Marina, Dubai Marina want? Um, and they want these following 10 cuisine types. Um, and then we go next step is let's go find the best content out there, the best brands out there that can kind of fulfill that demand. And then that's step two, right? So we will figure out what are these brands, how can we cook these brands in the most efficient way possible? And then step three would be, okay, how, what, what kitchen capacity do we need to service that demand? Right? And then based on that, we then go say, okay, how can we design a kitchen most efficient way possible to get that out? And I think that's kind of the, the logic we arrive to as opposed to let's build a kitchen and figure out what can we cook inside this kitchen. Now that said, we need a lot of flexibility in our kitchens and uh, and, and so they are very modular in nature just because uh, you know relevant content today might not be relevant content you know in a week from now. Right? And then the ability for us to be very flexible to 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 adapt to what customers want is something that we think we're good at. So if you put in all these variables in together um, and then and, and ability for us to really have people who have never worked in the kitchen um, and, and to think about how can we solve for three things. Like how can we solve for speed? And so I think that's something we think about and typically in a normal QSR kitchen, you don't really think about that because you're, you, know, you don't have to think about the entire end-to-end -end delivery all the way to the, to the 
you know, to the, if you're not thinking about where that dispatch, where the drivers wait, where you're not thinking about that in a typical restaurant, right? So, so avail, you know, speed is important. Availability of products, and this is where our conveyor systems and Marco systems allows us to really eliminate uh, any error when it comes out to order accuracy. Right? So if you look at um, the last 2020 Q3 Mac delivery report that's public, you'll see that in, depending on the market, three to 5% of all um, Mac delivery orders had, depending on the city, had an error inside it, right? And it's 0.2% on our side. And one, and a big part is due to a lot of the, you know, design and technology we built on a kitchen level. And, and, and the third thing, you know, we look at is quality, right? Think about a typical kitchen, it's, it's uh, you know, there's a lot of traditional ways of how do you monitor quality in a kitchen, of which some will obviously implement, such as a lot of training, um, you know, a lot of oversight. But there's also a lot that we have thought about that is not typical of the food space, right? So if you enter for kitchens, you'd see um, our kitchens are fully covered. You know, we have cameras covering the entire kitchen, allows us to monitor if, if for any reason that there is, you know, uh, an anomaly such as I didn't wear my mask or I didn't wear my hairnet. You know, we would be you know, in real time alerted that there's something wrong. Um, if you use the wrong colored chopping knife, the wrong chopping board will be alerted and things like that. So if you think of kitchen design, when we think of kitchen design, we think of it more, not just in isolation of a 2D layout, but more about how does it fit into really solving, uh, really getting customers what they want, right? Which is uh, you know, food delivered on their terms. What is your error rate in comparison? You, you mentioned the Mac delivery. 0.2% uh, versus 3 to 5%. And that's applied on, so the, the Mac delivery ones apply on all their, their deliveries versus yours, uh, like in terms of numbers, the sample side? Yeah, yeah. so I'm talking about like on the average of the year, right? So the annual average. And where, where, is, where does, like, what contributes to the error the most? Do you think, and within within yours or my delivery? Not, you, you, I'm sure you'll find it hard to believe, but and it's something that Sam and I found extremely hard to make is that the number one complaint we used to face when we launched the business, and it seems like it's the number one complaint across the industry, is missing items. You for you know our staff forgetting to put the order that the customer ordered, like the complete order. It's something as simple as that. Turns out it's one of the biggest issues in the kitchen. Um, so, so yeah, so that's uh, that's what we're trying. And, and how do you solve for that? You just have like someone checking as each bag is going out, or is there like a tech component that's embedded into it? That's how it started, right? Like like anything else we do, um, it's kind of you know build or buy logic. And what can we solve in the interim till we figure out how to build this? If we need to build or buy. And so, you know, initially it was let's have three people cross-check something manually and document it, right? Obviously not scalable and in nature, and error rate wasn't brought down a lot uh, until our product team. Our product team spend a lot of time on the ground, right? So this is not a team that runs things virtually, but they're very much hands-on in our kitchens, or depending on what part of uh, the problem we're trying to solve. Uh, and so one of our product leads was, you know, they looked at the problem and they're like, the best way to solve this is, is very simple logic that is applied in other e fulfillment verticals. Right? If you think of our business as a fulfillment vertical of food, in other fulfillment verticals of non-food, they'd have a, a scanner, a barcode scanner, everything's scanned. No one scans anything in, in on-demand food, right? So a very simple logic like that was applied 
and automate it. I mean, that was a starting point of how we tried, how we started to figure it out. Sam, would you add anything to that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, the the product that uh, Moody is describing it, it solves multiple problems in one, right? So when you see how an order is distributed in the kitchen, so let's say you you know you ordered uh, a, you have a fries and a Big Mac and a salad. I know not not the right combination, but let's say you get that right. They would distribute across the kitchen. The, the burger would go to the to the grill section. The fries would go to the fry section, to the fryer section, and the salad would go to the salad section. They would distribute. A challenge becomes bringing that order together. So everybody would place their their finished item. They would barcode it, label it, and then place it on a conveyor. And that conveyor would travel to an assembly team. That assembly team needs to assemble the order. They now need to know that this item goes with that. You know, th this item goes with that order. So they end up scanning, and that that uh, scanning solution is actually aiding them in their sorting process. But it's also ensuring and validating that that item was in, indeed prepared. Um, while doing so, so the scanning of a of a you know and, and other uh, fulfillment so it's easier to scan because everything is barcoded and so on. So how how would you do that with smaller items? I don't know, like cutlery, for example. Cutlery wouldn't be barcoded. That would be sitting in the dispatcher, anyways. And they would have like very clear visual to do list tasks where they would acknowledge that they've they've uh, uh, added those in. But the main items, which is in the end of the day, is the vast majority of, of sort of a complaint, you know, is if you miss an actual food item, those items would be prepared and barcoded at the same time. Okay, what about missing a something in the item? Like I asked to add a pickle or whatever. Yeah, so we aid those through better training and very clear visual references. And for the items itself, do you see, is there a way to automate that at some point where, where yeah, so then we, we use a lot of smart appliances in the kitchen to automate a lot of the cooking in many ways. Um, uh, so if we talk about, for example, we're, we're actually using a salad robot to, to automatically um, uh, prepare salad, up to 20 ingredients, and it dispenses it based on the exact quantity weighted, um, and dispensing the sauce, the proteins, as well as the salad. Um, uh, there's a lower margin of error when you, when, you do, when you actually automate those tasks. When it comes to the preparation of hot food items, we use smart ovens which automate cooking based on temperature, time, and configuration. A lot of the items are pre-prepared in a, in a hub and spoke model in the central kitchen that dispatched to the, to the satellite. So they would place those items into a smart oven, and then they would just use the templated um, uh, uh, setting. So they would just put tawuk, for example, place it on the shelf, and it would cook it down to precision. And you can cook a variety of items at the same time within these smart ovens. You can have lasagna on one, tawuk on another, and you know even hot vegetables with no cross-contamination. Through a technique known as convection cooking. So right now, the like the AI that you're using is an assistant to, to humans, right? So it's the, the smart oven, the uh, salad mixer, and so on. Do you see one day that you know your kitchen is going to become more like a Tesla factory where everything is automated from A to Z, the, the whole sandwich or the pizza, you know, from start to finish? Yeah, I definitely see more automation in the kitchen. We actually use AI and ML for a number of use cases, right? We use it to detect anomalies, as Moody was mentioning, when it comes to hygiene and, and food safety. But we also use it when it comes to sequencing what orders we prepare first, right? With the way we don't necessarily cook order number one before number four, we algorithmically sort them to maximize efficiency. And we sort them based on number of parameters. The main point is food should not sit on the shelf. When a driver arrives, it needs to go out the door fresh. 
So we sequence it based on when the driver is expected to arrive. We also sequence it based on, on the, the time an item takes to prepare. For example, fries take two minutes and a burger can take eight minutes. It, it doesn't make sense to prepare the fries immediately and let and, and have it go cold, waiting for the additional six minutes for the burger to be complete. So it actually, see, it machine learns the actual time the burger takes and it sequences it so that they finish at the exact same time. And those are just a number of, of the use cases. When it comes to actually cooking automation, you're seeing more and more technology. There's a lot of smart appliances being built as we speak that is widening the categories of automation in the kitchen. Um, uh, and prior to COVID, this was already accelerating. Post COVID, people are actually valuing the appliances far more because they want less contamination in the kitchen um, uh, and then be, and I see more and more embracing that concept of automation uh, when it comes to food preparation. Now to add to that, the thing that when we think of automation, we're trying to solve for two things, right? we're trying to, or three things now, we're trying to solve for uh, some form of labor cost optimization. So in, in, in some cities that we operate in, it's less of a problem because doesn't cost uh, businesses typically that much to operate. Uh, but in some other cities that we're expanding to, you know, when you pay $20 an hour uh, to, you know, it, it starts, like, it becomes a, a viable case. The second thing we we look at doing in a, uh, you know, second reason we'd look at automating is quality, right? So as, as much as we're building systems to allow us to track and trace and, and, and really improve quality, I do think that as, long, as soon as you get to automate it, that you crack that overnight, right? So, and then the, the third one is speed. Right? I do think that at a certain point you can easily calculate throughput, and accordingly, you know, build capacity and, and manage demand supply patterns when you automate. So we are, you know, looking at making sure that the last thing we want is um, what we feel others in our space might have done in different parts of the world, which is they still have the cook. But now they have a robot as well, right? so you didn't really get to solve everything. So our whole idea here is, if we do want to automate, we want to find ways that can completely automate the end-to-end -end process. And I think that we're we're very well to get there very soon. Uh, so, so correct me if I'm wrong, but something that I personally have experienced uh, sometimes when I know that an item, like I know that a restaurant. That I'm ordering from their item is coming from a cloud kitchen. I have experienced that the quality of the food or the the taste of it. Forget about maybe the, not the hygiene, not the quality, but the taste of it is not the same like when I'm ordering from a, from the actual restaurant where where you know that burger or that meal was made. Uh, do you experience that? I mean, when especially when when you know everything becomes like an assembly line, and, and I mean in certain certain. Uh, Restaurants like fast food, it is already in one or the other like that. But in more, um, you know, two, three branch restaurants, like smaller restaurants, there is like the element of uh, the original chef or whoever is cooking it, like making that meal. Uh, have you received such, you know, complaints or have you, what does your research tell you as well within that? So typically if a brand is up, um, then it cannot survive, as you said, right? You've, you've ordered from different cloud kitchens and you've noticed a difference between the original restaurant and the cloud kitchen. And that is not the issue of a cloud kitchen. Right? That's the issue more that the brand itself was not built to scale. And even if they had two or three or four brick and mortar restaurants, they would still struggle with the same logic, right? So there's nothing in the cloud kitchen that makes it different to a restaurant in terms of 
cooking procedure, right? So those remain consistent. They just didn't build a scalable product uh, that can be replicated easily. Um, that said, I do think there are, in some cases, um, you know, risks associated to quality, to food safety, right? That's kind of one of the key themes we've been hearing that others feel they're worried about. In our case, it would manage to really advance. I mean, our kitchens are all ISO 22000 certified, right? So like the highest level of food safety standards you can find. So, um, and again, it comes out to one very key thing, which is, you know, can you, is this product ready to scale up, right? Can you replicate it very easily? Typically, large QSR chains um, have built that know-how and, and, and I guess uh, smaller brands sometimes struggle with that. And we play a key role in helping them get there, right? So that's one of the services we do offer. Uh, well, how does Ketopia make money today? What's what's your business model? So imagine a hundred dollar check. Um, you you go on an aggregator. You uh, order from uh, you order from a pizza brand you, for for hundred dollars. That order comes to um, a kitchen closest to where you live that we cook. So a Ketopia kitchen close to where you live. That also we see that on our screen. We start cooking the food. Um, we then pay a brand a royalty fee for the right to use their brand, um, and then it's typically around 8% of every transaction. And then, um, we, you know, you, uh, the aggregator sends a driver to pick up the food, and you as a customer get a full branded experience, that of the pizza brand. Um, and so $100, you have $8, it goes to um, the, the, the brand, uh, $25 goes to the aggregator, on average, uh, I'm talking about in general history, restaurant industry uh, averages, and and the rest is ours. So help me understand the math here. I mean, every aggregator, you know, I think everyone, every single aggregator in the world is losing money today. Uh, none of them, yeah, none, none of them is, is, is profitable. They're, they're making a lot of revenues, but you know, their EBITDA, their, their net income is, is in the negative. The restaurants are also nagging. Most restaurants say, you know, we're losing business, our margins are, are slimmer, uh, and so on. So who's winning here? Is it the customer? Where's, where's the, uh, the the money coming from? What is your, like, if you can talk first about maybe the aggregators, I know it's not directly your, but you work with aggregators, they're kind of like unit economics from average order value. You said the delivery cost is, is the highest, you know, cost within the, uh, is Hitopi coming in to kind of like try to help solve that problem within the industry of of improving the unit economics of the overall industry? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll take I'll start that and Sam, I'll pass it on to you. So, so think of it as an ecosystem that's pretty broken and um, it needs a, an immediate solution. Uh, the customer is definitely the winner here, and I think that's an amazing thing that you know customers get uh, more for less. And um, I think the aggregators are definitely, you know, delivering on what customers want and, and restaurants need to adapt this new digital age. Now, the reality is restaurants will lose money unless something changes, some dramatic changes in their business model. Um, and we do think that aggregators will find it difficult to make money unless there is some serious optimization when it comes down to the cost of delivering food. And this is where Kitopi sits really well. And the fact that we can allow restaurants to scale up and they have no more downside risk. They have no OPEX, no CAPEX, they get instant scale. Right? And then if you look at from, a, from, a, from an aggregator perspective, you know, we have a clear path 
to each aggregator and how we can cut their operating costs by half, right? allowing them to double the amount of orders they take per hour with us versus without us, which then drives it straight to their bottom line. And I think this is how we feel we make this ecosystem work. Yeah. But what I'll probably add, if you if you take the restaurant, you know, as a, as the first sort of stakeholder here, when you focus on them, what what happened, right? They were they were doing okay, and the margins were fine in the restaurant business. But as soon as delivery became a sizable part of their demand, a lot of that demand was shifted away from from dining, and uh, suddenly they were paying an extra twenty five percent. The margins weren't there most of the time. To enable them to pay this entire this extra 25% fee on top of their cost structure. So that was a big challenge. Hence the rise of cloud kitchens and the shared kitchen model that, that many, you know, that many are, are doing in the real estate play. But that didn't quite solve the problem. Um, it helps, it is a, a cost-effective method of expansion, leasing non-prime real estate to serve that that demand. But what we've done is we've simply added, we've accelerated the efficiencies here. We we've taken a supply chain and enabled many players to tap into better purchasing power when they didn't have the volume by, by centralizing that supply chain. Same thing with the labor. By having mixed utilization patterns, we're able to utilize the labor a little better. We were able to pump up the orders per square foot to make it all worthwhile for the restaurant partner. Now, when you look at the, the, the aggregator, right, their cost structure is a big component of their delivery and their logistics, which is an expensive part of their, their, their costs. And by having more demand from a central location, they're able to utilize those drivers far more effectively, making making it make far more sense for them as well. But do you see like a core problem within the unit economics of aggregators in general? I mean, I've, I've read an analysis, you guys know a lot more than me on this, but the, the lifetime value of a customer for an if you take like a five year lifetime is like in their homes, like 200 dirhams. Uh, do you know like any number of figures that you say about like a lifetime value? If you factor in all the acquisition costs that goes in and you know, given all the competition, all the various costs, you end up in a losing business. And that's the currently what you see with among a lot of aggregators. Do you see that changing? I do. Do I say that? I will want, I'll put my thoughts in before I let Moody weigh in here. But I think a big part of it is that acquisition cost, the marketing structure to begin with, right? Yeah, there is a, there's aggressive competition in the aggregator arena. And there is a lot of burning associated with that acquisition cost, with the hope that that consumer will retain, right? Now, I, I do think that uh, that the, the playing fields are leveling out and then ultimately that will yield, uh, uh, there is enough market share to go around, but it really depends on how aggressive they are with that acquisition to begin with. Yeah. So look, I, I mean, I, I, I know the article you're referring about, and maybe I'd rather not you know, comment too much about the aggregated world. What I can tell you is Deliver Hero is a publicly listed company, and uh, the Middle East is a profitable uh, uh, hub for them. And, um, and and so I would comment about Deliveroo, and I'd assume the same for Kareem, um, and I'd say the same for Grubhub in the US, and, and same for Uber Eats in multiple cities. I do think that it, it, it makes sense in a lot of cities and in cities where they are uh, investing heavily, they typically would, as Sam was saying, you know, there's, there's, it's a pretty fierce battle out there for, for you know, market share and domination. And I do think they're in the business of, you know, they're acquiring users in a very aggressive way. But, but again, how do we see commissions 
moving, right? If you think about it this way, you know, there's two trends that we are sure are going to continue. Commissions are going to go up and prices to consumer are going to go down, right? So <laughs> that is a big issue for the aggregator, uh, for the for the restaurant. And I would say that, you know, if we think of that as a prime, like we are, it's a primary solution we're offering to allow the restaurants to be more efficient. I'm not going to figure out a way to make a profit. I do think if you have a, a couple of billion dollars poured into you, you're going to figure that piece out. <laughs> it's not going to be that difficult. What I worry about is how a restaurant is going to make a living, right? Because you don't have that much money being poured there. Right? So that's kind of our dilemma is like, how do we solve a, a larger problem? And the larger problem in our eyes today is one for the restaurants. Yeah, restaurants, I mean, I agree with you. I think the restaurants have like a lot of challenges on the way and they're trying to figure out, uh, you know, a lot of their own kind of like unit economics. Uh, I want to talk a bit about other markets. I know you guys uh, are different markets and looking to expand beyond that as well. I mean, just from a consumer point of view, I'll tell you that I'm here right now in the US and when I place an order on a $30 order, I end up paying crazy amount of money on top of that between delivery fee, service charge, tax, tip, like on a, on a $30 order, probably end up paying like 42 or 43 with all the other additions versus in Dubai when, you know, uh, seven, eight dirhams and we complain about that, you know? So uh, what is, and how does, is the, you know, the Middle East making, you know, are you said are profitable out of that versus other markets are not with all these additional, you know, charges and the extra cost that the uh, consumer is. It, it feels that in, in, in the Middle East, the consumer has to, uh, is, is benefiting way more than the consumer in more developed markets. So how do, what do you think about that? And how do you see, you know, from Ethiopia's point of view, as you're trying to expand different markets and look at different uh, dynamics and different things, what have you learned, what have you seen? Uh, what do you prepare for before going into a market, especially that's, that's outside the Middle East? So maybe I'll start with that second piece first, and then I'll go back to the first piece if I remember your question well. So, so how do we greenlight the market? Right. So this is you know, and I, I, I think our maturity in figuring figuring that out has evolved a lot over the past three years. So when we first, um, and, I, and I'll say this kind of uh, maybe for the first time here, right? So the, when we first wanted to figure out which markets we're going to go to, obviously the Middle East. There was a couple of big cities that we knew we wanted to be in. And then I do think that there's an element of um, immature ego that played in, right? Like, oh, we can do the US and UK super easy. It's markets we need to get in and we need to conquer the world, right? And I think that while we do want to go back into the US and we do want to conquer the world, I do think that a lot more maturity in terms of how we think of going, right? So we have a three-step process. So when we want to go. And I do think that any business needs to earn the right to expand. And that's something we're very cautious to to really honor, right? So I don't think that any business can expand. I do think it needs to earn that right. And it doesn't just mean how much money you've raised, right? It, it, it really means how's your operation? Like, are you able to replicate what you do? Can you execute really well, right? How's the team's readiness? How's the unit economics of the business overall, both top line to bottom line? And I do think that's kind of a key trigger. We would put key triggers that allow us to give us that right. And if we don't have a trigger, we just don't have the right to expand. And I think that holds us all accountable on, on when we think we're ready as a business. The second piece of it is in where you want to expand. And, uh, and this is where having an army of McKinsey uh, 
uh, consultants on board helps you kind of navigate and set frameworks of how do you think about green lighting a city? Does it make sense? Is it not? Uh, and then we have a four, you know, four-dimensional exercise, a little too uh, smart for my thinking here. But um, but the reality is like we 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 looked at you know, 140 cities in different parts of the world, and we came to a set of cities that we think um, were best positioned to win. It makes sense for us. And then, and then once you're in that, uh, once you've sorted them all out and you know that that's kind of the cluster of cities you're going to go after next, it's on how you're going to get there, right? So we have a over 100 page document in every city on how we're going to make that city work. And we have you know, teams on the ground working on this ahead of time. And I think we're in a place where we understand exactly how to replicate what we do very efficiently. Again, as long as the kind of first and second piece are in place, um, we think that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at execution in a very granular level. That's something we haven't done before, right? And I think that uh, a big part is the, the team we have on board um, and our maturity as a business has allowed us to really think in this way. Uh, what has been your, your most successful city uh, so far that you've expanded to or and, and, and why as well? Look, I do think headquarters will always for most companies i guess remain to be the most successful of all cities i do think that's where most solution teams sit and spend their time in and so you know we are very proud to be based out of dubai and i do think that the ue in general is a very successful country for us but that said saudi arabia is uh, was our fastest growing city until uh, last month kuwait exceeded it and, and i do think that's an amazing battle of you know, you know, both uh, cities really growing super fast. It's, it's a good problem to have in our case. Um, and when we see that, you know, like if we look at every single city we've launched are hitting thresholds of like, are hitting certain milestones much faster than the city before, right? So, so I do think that the you know the, the expansion team are getting things right, and the overall team is just really knowing how to execute new markets much better than the other markets. Uh, what's your main like growth driver when you when you like put a kind of like expansion plan and attack a city? Like where do you, how do you acquire customers? Uh, what is your your approach that you think have worked best, and have you changed that over time as well? Look, I think the biggest change for us is we usually now grow through acquisition, and um, and we've became we've become like an integration machine. Right, on how we integrate businesses into Kitopi. And I do think that's one of the ways we think is most efficient in our world of how we can expand. Um, so the, the, the simple version here is, imagine that you are, imagine in a previous world, we used to um, you know, take users from point A to point B, and in point B, they didn't have any users, and we had to help them create a, a, a user base, right? So they're the ones spending money, but we had to kind of be patient on them um, on them being able to acquire users efficiently. And in a new model, we actually are going, instead of telling them to take you from point A to point B, we want your point A business on day one. So we go to that city, take over a few businesses and operate them on day one. So uh, that's been working for us. And, uh, and and that's something we'll continuously do. So, 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 yeah, something I'll add to that is that, you know, in the past, if you just had a great restaurant, that should have been enough. You should do well and you should grow. Today, you see a lot of good businesses, good brands closing down. And you question why they, they weren't able to make their economics work. So part of our strategy, as, as Moody was mentioning, is when we enter a city, we find some of these, these brands that do have a couple of locations, but they're, they're on the edge 
and then they become a customer and a client and a partner on our platform when we take over their infrastructure. It's also a very efficient way of utilizing existing infrastructure, right? A lot of people are sort of rebuilding the, 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 the infrastructure from the ground up, building new kitchens when there's a lot of existing real estate that, that could be repurposed. Uh, Sam, on the tech side, and especially as you start to expand globally, probably your HQ in Dubai will, will be the core of that tech side. And on talent specifically, how's been your experience with, with hiring talent in, in Dubai and the UAE? Are they all based in the UAE or do you have tech team in, in other locations? Um, so it's been extremely tough, very, very tough. So when we, uh, when we decided that we were going to build up our own tech stack, the very first thing I did was look for a phenomenal VP of engineering that can complement my shortcomings. I haven't programmed since university, right? And I, I made some mistakes in prior startups, which, you know, I, I think the biggest fear of any entrepreneur is you build something that nobody wants, and then some things you build something that people do want, but no one's really willing to pay for. I had both those issues and I had a third issue, which was building horrible tech stacks, right? Worked with the wrong people, put the wrong assumptions, ended up building something that really nobody actually wanted. So when we started, especially when we started raising funds and, and getting trusted investors on board, we were very cautious with making sure this money was well spent. And the first thing I did was look for great talents. And uh, our engineering hub is based out of Poland. Literally put on a backpack, went to Eastern Europe, um, uh, a little bit about sort of the train of thought of how I landed in Poland, went on HackerRank, a very popular tool for screening engineers. One of the benefits of using HackerRank is because so many people do tests on it, it starts categorizing best countries and nationalities when it comes to, to you know, certain programming languages. So went there, ended up shortlisting Poland, went to Poland, in Poland, went to a town called Krakow, known for a really great tech university. and. Uh, worked with a lot of headhunters looking for a great uh, um, uh, a VP of engineering to work with, landed one, and then started building up my team from the ground up from Poland. Um, all our engineers are in Poland. We have over, our whole tech team is, is uh, roughly 80 people today. And uh, half of that sits out of Poland uh, in terms of engineering. Our product, 20% sits out of Poland and the remaining is, is out of Dubai. Product specifically, you know, being the, gatherer and understandings of what needs to be built. I wanted that as close to the business as, as possible. Um, as Moody was mentioning earlier, tech is built in partnership with the business. So they work very closely when it comes to understanding what needs need to be, need to be solved. And uh, our data team sits out of Dubai as well. That, that said, even when we came to find, finding the right product talent, um, it, it was a bit challenging coming. A lot of the, the recruits we had, we flew them from different countries. I flew people from the States, um, from Russia, as well as Poland. So you you went down the route of more like importing talent one way or the other to Dubai, uh, the ones that are based out of Dubai rather than hiring from within. Um, do you see this big discrepancy in terms of the uh, quality and, and, and knowledge versus, you know, in, in, that's one area. And another area is salaries and, 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 and pay and so on within, within the UAE. So it wasn't salaries. That definitely wasn't the, the factor of sort of our decision making. When it comes to the quality of talent, it, every 
emerging sort of country has has a learning curve, right? And today Dubai has phenomenal talent. You know, you've had successes like Kareem and and many countless you know uh, great tech companies come out of Dubai, Property Finder for one, right? So there is a great talent pool, but there's also a lot of startups being built, right? At, at the same time, and um, when you just benchmark that with sort of the West and how product is practiced there, they've gone through that learning curve. You know, there's been many, you know, hundreds of of, of uh, massive successes, and uh, and Poland in particular is a hub of tech development for many in the West, right, and in Europe. So, for example, Google has an R&D center there. You have uh, IBM too, and Motorola, and it, it in, in many ways it ended up serving as an accelerated form of of, of training and, and education for the for the talent pool there. So building something extremely complex, you know, you, you try to draw a parallel with the talent pool you're working with. For example, our VP of engineering, one of the, 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 the biggest reasons to why we partnered with him was he worked on, he was the CTO of, of Impost, which is, they just recently went, went public for, uh, for, for, I think, 7 billion euros or, or more. And uh, he was working on complex parcel automation. So sequencing parcels, log logically routing them correctly, automating them. Immediately when I saw that experience, I drew a parallel between that and food, you know, in terms of how we route uh, our food items and how we sequence those in the kitchen. So there was a, a great correlation there. And when you have that sort of relevance, you just work with so much more, uh, so much more speed. That's very interesting. Uh, and what's what's your uh, kind of approach for for hiring technical talent, like your VP of engineering or others? hiring process or interview process that you go through so one one common factor that starts with with the entire also everyone at Kotopi is a culture bar what we call a bar test right it's really making sure that they they would you know are compatible with the values that we have um uh, you know i i think every you you hear values get preached a lot right values are important values are important and i i think it was probably in our second year did we really understand what values mean to an organization, this tribal mindset of all being on the same wavelength, on agreeing on a few principles that you've all aligned with? There are many great characteristics that we should all carry, but really banking and betting on, on the ones that matter most. And that has become a non something we don't compromise on when it comes to finding, finding the right talent curve. So that's something we emphasize really heavily on. And, uh, and then second, it comes to the, the talent quality, the hard skills, right? Understanding, and there's a lot of case studies and tests that we do with that. We do workshops where we, we see the dynamic interactions and we get to actually trial what, what working together would look like, usually in, in the best mutual fit, mutual benefit to both the candidate and, and us. When it comes to values, do you know what, what Kitopi is like? As you said, you know, a lot of, every company has values that are written down on paper, but you know, values usually many times have unintentional. They're based on you know, many times on the founders, uh, like founders' personalities, culture, and like can kind of you know, expand to the, the whole team. Uh, what is like the one defining you know, Kitopi culture or team? How would I define Kitopi's culture? Like one, 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 and once one word or one sentence. Like how would you? What, what do you say is the overarching like? I'll say first of all transparency that that's that's one that sort of embodies all we're a very transparent business um, uh, we really 
embody all our team into our decision making as much as possible. Even when COVID ha occurred, we were very conscious to making sure everybody was aware every step of the way. And we do that through a series of broadcasts. We do, you know, we have all hands. We actually have a global all hands and a tech all hands. And we have a sequence of uh, many events we do to keep everybody informed with what with what we do. And we really, with that transparency, down to even fundraising to, to, to an extent, to really keep, make everyone understand that they are a partner on this journey. And uh, and they get a share and a, a massive say in, in what we do. Speaking of fundraising, I would want to finish this uh, podcast without, without tapping on that. Uh, Mo, can you share a little bit more about, I mean, both of you, but I think, you know, from most of, uh, in terms of your experience on fundraising, you fundraise, you're one of the most uh, funded startups in the, in the region, especially in the last, in the last year. Uh, what has been your approach, your, your key learnings, the mistakes that you've done with that process that other founders can learn from? So first, I think that we don't uh, look at how much money we've raised as a metric of success. And I do think that's one of the mistakes that we feel some um, founders would fall into. And and, uh, and it's not just how much money you've raised. I actually wish we only raised nothing, right? I wish we just never raised money and we built what we built. Uh, but the reality is our business is capital intensive and to get to achieve what we want to achieve, we have to raise what we achieve. Now, I, I think that, you know, key things here is find the right set of investors very early on. I think we were very lucky and we were not experienced. Like I have never fundraised my life, just sold a business. I've never really fundraised before. So uh, that was something I, I think we were very lucky to have our first two investors were phenomenal. Right? And that paved the way for everything else thereafter. So we have um, 16 investors on board now. And um, and I think that you know, we've been very clear. So this is how I do it. Our processes of fundraising are very tight. So we raise money in less than a month. Right? And we're very clear with our process of start to finish, how we want to do it, who we want to do it. And um, I do think it's a form of a dance. It's, it means an art more than a science, I would say. And, um, and I think that knowing how to dance in, in this very tight time is a very important skill that founders i think need to be able to to build on it, it is uh it is not a you know you think of it as like dating right like if you were to go and date someone um you're not it's not a transaction right i think most dating is not a transaction uh, and and then there is an element where you need to figure out how to get that person to like you, how to make yourself feel, how to make you know you look like you're the most important person in the world, but also that you are very scarce and uh, there's not much of you, right? And, and think of it both ways. And it's the same kind of philosophy in fundraising, right? So how do you make sure that you know they can see you as the best company ever, um, and that you know there are very little time to make a decision. I think the second you give someone too much time. Uh, they end up not making a decision, right? So like very tight processes, like it's super fast. And um, and again, be very genuine and honest. I think that's a very important thing is investors see on average, a good investors see on average like a thousand deals a year. They call bullshit really fast. They can see it, right? So no matter how much you try and sell and do, they know exactly what's real and what's not real. And, um, and the other day, I asked Sam, I'll give an example of level of transparency we believe in. 
I asked Sam, I was like, you know what? Our fourth generation kitchen, what do you think we're, we're um, you know, Sam was doing a, a tech demo the other day. Um, and I was like, what do you think if you introduce that fourth generation kitchen in that tech demo? He's like, no, I won't. I was like, why? He's like, because I don't know when I'm going to deliver on it. And I just don't want to be not honest. And I think that's kind of, you know, what investors see us, um, they know that what we're saying is going to be delivered on. And we're going to actually overachieve it, right? So, and that's been something very important is to build credibility versus, you know, being, being you can, I mean, you can lie once and then that's it. You're going to be called on it and then you're out, right? So I think that being honest and genuine, running a tight process, having amazing investors early on, and not many of them is kind of my uh, advice here. What has been your easiest and most difficult round that you've done? Um, it gets harder every round. And I think that uh, the more you raise, the more complex the rounds are. And I think that we've been pretty fortunate to have a smooth sailing uh, process. Um, but I, I, I think that we're not, um, I mean, we're anticipating, you know, more challenges coming ahead as, you know, you raise much larger rounds. That said, the fundamentals remain the same. If you have a great business, I do think that you will get the right investor. I do think that it's not a milestone. And one of the mistakes we did, maybe a final point for that, one of the mistakes we did early on was we were solving for what the investor wants, right? You know, I remember I was in a board meeting um, not so long ago, and one of our investors said, why don't you move to this location much faster? Because I'm sure you can raise more money. And maybe a year before that board, we would have said, you know what's a great idea? You'd be solving for what the investor wants, uh, what the future investor wants. And we said, no. And we said, no, obviously in collaboration with them, and we have a, you know, amazing dynamics on our board, but you know, we said no, and it was a clear no. It, was not, like it, it took us one second to figure out, no. Why? Because we're solving for what the customer wants. And if we solve for what the customer wants, we can grow efficiently, we can hit the right bottom line, and every single investor will wait in queue to come. That's so important what you just mentioned. I've, I've heard that from a lot of founders as well. I've uh, already experienced that myself also. Like it's for founders, it's very important to know, you know, when to, to not enter, like not everything you need to entertain. Your investors are your partners, but not always, you know, uh, the interests are equal or the same. Uh, so you have to kind of be very uh, smart about, you know, uh, being diplomatic at the same time doing, like you said, always what's best for the business and what's best for the same vision. Especially as you start getting a lot of investors on board when you grow, you have, you know, uh, 10 or some stars have 15 inv different investors on board. So uh, that's that's a very good point uh, and, and learning take. When it comes to transparency before uh, kind of end to the, to, to the closing notes, have you expanded that beyond your team and your investors? Do you have like a public pro product uh, roadmap? Do you share? Uh, metrics and, and updates with the public uh, in what's known as building in public. Uh, do, do you do that at all in, in spirit of the transparency? Yeah, so that transparency we embody is completely open. I mean, metrics internally are completely within everybody's disposal. I mean, even our dashboards are very much self-service. Everybody has access to see where we stand revenue-wise, profitability-wise. That sort of information is really open within. And our product roadmap, our tech roadmap, once again, is within. Keep in mind, we have close to a thousand, Moody knows, I think it's roughly 1,500 plus ketokens within, within uh, our organization alone. So that's a lot of communication. 
and then a lot of involvement. But do you ever consider making that public to your customer? Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting question. And I actually, this morning, was talking to one of our investors and, and um, I was talking to him about, you know, info rights and where we share information where we don't. And he was challenging me at that point and exactly what you said. Yeah. So today we are not public with information that we uh, feel it's a very competitive landscape. And uh, we are in, you know, the first movers and we're innovating on this global level. Um, but I do see a world where we will be more public with what we do. I think it's just a timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of benefits from building public versus, you know, risks when it comes to competitors and so on. But in general, there's a lot of benefits uh, for creating, you know, or transferring that transparency of your customers uh, and to the entire, you know, ecosystem that you serve. Um, I'm gonna pick your brain on that offline. Yeah. On on a closing note, where where, where do you see Kitopi next? What's next for Kitopi? Yeah, I'll take that pass on to you, Senator. So, what's next? I mean, we've just launched our new um, our, our new values. Something that we feel very proud of. So I do think from you know that's we're spending a lot of time there, making sure that we uh, we're raising the bar continuously. Um, we were excited to. Um, to expand to new markets as well. So we think that, um, you know, more, a lot more to come this year. We're, you know, branching into Southeast Asia, which is exciting for us. And uh, and, and I think that, can I, you know, Sam, would you add anything to that? I can tell you on the tech stack, right, in that sense. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to, we're investing in that, in that space. We're, we're doubling our team over this year. The opportunities we're investing in, a lot in data. We're investing heavily in, in leveraging our data infrastructure. A big part of what we focused on was really capturing so many data points. Today, we're actually talking about automating actions based on those data points, dynamic discounting and, and many other things. We're also uh, uh, upgrading our command center. So our command center is essentially our is, is what we use to, uh, to uh, monitor and troubleshoot orders globally. So we're investing heavily in this, in this function to detect issues before they do become issues to, again, better the, the consumer journey and many other things in the kitchen when it comes to smart robotics. That's awesome, guys. Uh, we're already over an hour. This went by quick. I know, Mo, you, want, you thought that it was a bit too long, but for, it went quick, at least for me. And thank you for coming on. And, and you know, I think you already started uh, by doing this podcast to share more in public. We shared a lot today about what you guys are doing and, and what you're up to. And, and I think uh, everyone uh, watching now and be listening later to the podcast will, will have to learn a lot. Um, thank you very much for joining. Uh, it was really great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoy listening and find it useful, you can follow the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or watch the video version on stepplus.stepconference.com.
All right, Judd, thank you very much. Uh, good to have you here. Thanks for thank joining. You. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining the podcast, uh, the show. Um, it's great that we get to do do this, uh, even when we're in different countries. You're in, in Paris right now. Uh, I'm in, in the US, uh, different time zones. And it's great that we can get to do that. That's the great thing with virtual events. Uh, they can do this and continue to have these conversations no matter where we are in, in the world. Uh, so yeah, thanks for joining. And uh, before we start, maybe if you can, uh, just for the audience to know, tell us a little bit more about Sarwa. What is Sarwa? What do you guys do? Uh, maybe a little bit background story on when you get started. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. So, uh, so Sarwa basically is uh, um, the Middle East leading robo-advisor. Um, what that is, is basically it's a, it's a kind of fintech, uh, an online investment platform. Uh, so the idea is pretty simple. In the end, it's to make it very easy for people to uh, invest and save for the long term. Uh, so whether it's, you know, people who want to save for their retirement, for their uh, education, um, for their kids, whatever, uh, you know, from three years to 30 years horizons, uh, you just make it very easy for them to invest. Uh, you make it very affordable. Uh, you make the experience completely online and you, you know, you try to bring all the perks that come with, uh, you know, all the new services, um, that came with a digital age and you try to bring them to the, to the investment world. Uh, to the world of people's personal finances, basically. I mean, there's been a research, like especially, uh, for example, here in the US, like with Robinhood, and especially millennials investing uh, and being more educated on invest investing mm -hmm. on and stocks and different things. Are you seeing the same thing in the in the in the Middle East? Uh, are are younger people more educated now, more aware, uh, taking these steps earlier on? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um I think it's, it's there, it's in the Middle East, but it's not just young people. I mean, I think everyone in general, um, uh, just as a trend, everyone's more, uh, aware of investing. A lot of people are more aware of investing as, as more of a need now than a, uh, uh, than this luxury or, or something that's reserved for other people. Definitely, um, you know, young professionals, uh, are at the forefront of that. Um, and there's a lot of things that went into that, right? I mean, whether it's, uh, you look at the, um, whether it's the, the stock market going up and down in the, in the last two decades, you know, we all lived through now a couple of those and we saw the difference of, you know, those who invested, those who didn't, those who stuck in the market and those who didn't. Um, and then there's other things like whether it's cryptocurrencies, um, other things that, you know, got people excited about, uh, about investing and got them to really understand that, uh, um, uh, that, that investing is now more possible, more affordable, made easy. And it's the only way to basically generate wealth uh, in, the, in the long term uh, without having to work for it every day. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so how, how do you get started? Uh, when, when did Sarawak come about? Uh, where were you? How did the idea come? Were you in a job? Were you outside a job? Yeah, so... Um, uh, we had the idea to, for Sarwa and we started working on Sarwa, um, you know, at the very earliest steps, I think it was 2017, um, like September, 2017. So, uh, before that, uh, I was working at a, um, high speed trading, uh, hedge fund. So I was in, in finance working on the technical side. Mark was uh, working in uh, digital ban banking services, consulting on his end. Um, and we were at that time 
trying to think of, uh, we, we knew we wanted to basically launch uh, something. Um, and I think it came from a, a trip to, uh, to Lebanon that Mark did, uh, where, uh, you know, we were aware of, uh, robo advisors in Canada and we used them ourselves. Um, and I think he had a conversation with the relative and sort of understood that wait, this doesn't exist here. Um, and we both kind of liked the idea for, for, you know, each our own purposes or reasons. Uh, it felt close to home. It felt like something we could do. Um, we, we liked the idea of doing it in the Middle East, you know, since we're both uh, Lebanese. Um, so it just became kind of this, uh, it, it seemed to check all the boxes and uh, it was a tantalizing thing to try to try to do. Um, and of course it took, uh, took a lot of time to, to actually go from that idea, that one conversation, uh, to, to, you know, going full time at it. Um, but that's basically how it started. Going full time, meaning you were, you were, you were, you were having a job until things were at a certain stable level that that's when you left. Yeah. So it took about a year of, uh, of developments and, uh, discoveries basically before we went from, okay, this is an idea that we have to, this is something that uh, now I'm ready to quit, quit my job for, um, bit of a long story, but in the meantime, in that year, uh, a bunch of things happened. We started talking to, uh, just people in the field, people who might be angel investors in the future, started getting some interest, uh, we started talking to Nadine, who we, who I knew uh, from before. Um, she was, she would help us basically with just understanding the UAE as a market, um, and that's basically how we just started working together uh, in the early on. Um, also, just building some sort of prototype. I mean, for us, it was the idea was. Um, you know, we, we didn't have many leads on where to get started. We just knew more or less what we wanted to make. And we, we knew that we couldn't wait for those leads to show up to start doing something. So uh, we just created a fake investor meeting in our heads. Uh, and we said, okay, in May, we have an investor meeting. Um, so I'd work uh, like 10 hours in the weekends with a friend of mine, just you know, putting together landing page, uh, a, a prototype flow, basically just, just basically visual UI, um, with, you know, with, with the bells and whistles, but, but only mostly just visual, uh, to be able to show someone and, and tell them, okay, this is, this is what this, uh, customer journey is about. And this is what this customer is seeing. This is what they're doing. Um, Mark on his end working on things like, uh, uh, you know, making a solid business plan, um, getting, uh, starting to talk to brokerages, starting to look into the licensing. So basically just doing the, 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 the groundwork that, um, before which basically you want to de-risk a few things, um, do that groundwork for us. We didn't have to go full time at, at the time. It, it seemed very, uh, premature to go full time. And, uh, the, we went full time in the end, what happened was, um, and how Sarwa really uh, got off the ground was, um, the UAE in particular, Dubai launched, uh, a, li a test license for new fintechs without which it would have been very hard for a fintech like Sarah to get started. Uh, they launched a, an accelerator called fintech hive, uh, to basically, uh, bring in companies, the startups that are doing something new in fintech, introduce them to the market and give them a, a clear talking, uh, contact point with the regulators so that they can talk about this license. And so these came, uh, really at 
specifically the time when we were doing it, uh, when we were working on this, the deadline to apply was actually in May when we had our fake investor meeting scheduled. <laughs> so we had, we had a lot of things basically, um, we, we, we had been working on this without even knowing on what we were working basically. So we applied, uh, we got in, when we got in, we now had, um, a lot of validation from, uh, whether the people at the FinTech Hive, a lot of which are, you know, um, it's, you have the regulator on one end, you have a lot of, uh, financial professionals on the other. We had validation from, um, from investors who we had started talking to who, who sounded, uh, you know, interested in the topic, sounded interested in what we did, but for whom regulation was the number one, uh, question mark. So this was, you know, it, yeah. uh, things started coming together enough. And at that point it felt right. We knew that we had to go to the UAE and if we want to go there, we have three months during this thing to basically give it our all. And after those three months, it would be, you know, either, either we've taken off or it's, uh, or it's stagnated and maybe it's dead. So we knew that if we want to do this right, we give it our all for those three months. And that's, that's when we, uh, we quit basically. Mm -hmm. Got it. And, um, one question I have is that actually two questions I have. The first one is, when did you decide that, you know, what, or what was the trigger that, you know, it's time to go on this full time? Is it, um, or was it the, the license or was it like getting fundraising or just the fact that you can exist? Mm. I think it's, uh, it's always going to be a gut feel thing. Um, you know, at, at some point you start getting the sense of, okay, um, what I have right now, I have this, I mean, for us, I think what made sense was we started having a more or less a path to how this company can exist one day. Um, before that point, there was a possibility that there was no path for regulation that we knew about. Um, fundraising also, you know, if you don't have the regulation that killed the fundraising, um, so uh, you needed, we needed basically just a few more things to line up for us to have a clear vision of, okay, if we succeed in this and this and this and this, then this company can succeed. Now that this, there's this roadmap, even how, however vague it is, right. I mean, you're talking about, um, getting, you know, we, we're betting on basically being able to, uh, have the, the, the supply chain of Sedua, uh, set up and being able to find, find the right partners. Uh, betting on being able to find investment, betting on the regulator actually, you know, being on board with what you're doing and not, I, I mean, you, you know, it's, it can happen. The, they, they do a program and then it doesn't actually materialize. There's a lot of bets. It's never going to be safe. Uh, yeah. It's safe. It's too late. But at some point you have enough bets, the things to bet on that might actually succeed. And okay, now there's a roadmap. And after that, it's sort of, uh, the time was right. The time is right. There's a roadmap. Um, I think those things together more or less should be a good signal yeah. that maybe it's time to, to give it your all and to go full time. I like the way you mentioned bets. Uh, and I think this is really what a lot of startups are about uh, from a founder point of view and from an investor point of view. Uh, there's a book that I've read called Thinking in Bets, uh, which is quite an, it's, it's more meant for VCs, uh, but it's also relevant for startups, which is basically, you know, the main concept behind it is that you, you evaluate based on all the information you have at a time and you you make a bet basically, and that bet might work or not, but you've just made that decision based on the best information you have today. 
Uh, so in many cases, it just ends up being that the bed didn't work out because there's so many different factors that are uh, that are that come come into play. And on the product side, did you so you you, you created a prototype, uh, but did you go into like an MVP phase or you went straight from a prototype to building like the full product? Um, I think it's inevitable to go through an MVP phase. I mean, I don't even think we're out of the MVP phase. You know, you're, you're always, you can always make a better product and you always want to do more. And you're, you know, there's, I think that's kind of the, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, one of those muscles that you need to, to build is, um, you want to make something that people that's going to delight people that people can will 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 enjoy enough to use, um, and that does what it needs to do. But you don't want to basically spend your time building and not actually delivering, right? Um, so for us, it was a lot of. Uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of basically just um, you know taking a, an axe to this beautiful vision and and just whittling it down to okay, what are the minimum things that we that we need to have. But that's also because I'm uh, you know, more more functional in my thinking. I mean, Nadine and Mark would push back with, no, you know, we need to make sure this is there because it's, you know, this is really going to be what brings up the, um, you know, the experience, the brand, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, hopefully you have a good balance of those you know, personalities in that tug of war to find the right balance of the MVP that you want. Um, but it's inevitable that you'll have to go down that route. And for a company like your like Sarwa, uh, probably one of the the biggest uh, challenges that you have more than probably a lot of other startups is uh, validation early on. Trust is a big aspect. People are giving you their money, um, and when you're new, it's kind of the chicken and the egg problem. Uh, yeah. You don't have the customers to show that validation. At the same time, uh, you know you need the customer. You know, it's like it's, you need both. So how did you go about that? How did you solve for this, especially at the beginning? And I'm very interested to know as well, how you got your first, let's say 50 customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, like you said, it's a chicken and the egg problem. You need the track record to basically, you know, be trustworthy, but you need the, to, to be, you need the trust to get the first people to be able to have the track record. So, um, I mean, for us, there was a few things that, um, basically we took advantage of and other things that we basically came up with ourselves. Um, the test license that, uh, DIFC, um, created first off had this incorporated into it where, you know, at the beginning, in the first stage, um, we could only take 10 clients and, you know, those 10 clients had very clear communication with the regulator. And then after that, it went up to, I think 50 or something like that. So, and the amount of money we could take from a particular client was capped you know, at the beginning, then that would be lifted, et cetera. So, um, what we did was, um, so one part of it was that one part of it was, uh, in the end, you know, as a, as a regulated company, the regulator is we're giving you some, some trustworthiness vis-a-vis uh, -vis the market, because, you know, they're saying that, um, you know, these people are, being uh, regulated, you know, these people, this company Sarwa is regulated. We we're, we're keeping an eye on them to make sure they do things right. Um, so that is a signal of trust to, to the, um, to the market. The other one is, is it's a lot of, it's a, I, th I say it's a multi multifaceted thing, right? You have that, you have, um, showing that 
you're you're backed by you know legitimate uh, legitimate VCs, uh, legitimate people from from the sector. Um, another one, I mean, that, that so that's the external stuff I'd say, and then internally as a company, I mean, what we would do uh, for the first ones, for the first clients, you know, these are there was a lot of people who were uh, very interested in the space, you know, when when it first uh, started, uh, whether it's you know, the idea of startups appearing in the UAE, which was, which was quite novel at the time. I think it still is. Um, or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, this kind of investing being available in the UAE, which a lot of people, um, a lot of people wanted. And so you had people who were willing to, to basically be excited for your project. And those were, those were our, our first clients. There were people who, um, heard about Sarwa and came to Sarwa, uh, first off just to meet us and talk to us, uh, you know, as a founding team because they were interested in this project and they were interested in what we were doing. And so these people were happy to, you know, um, be our first yeah. clients mainly just to support. And you know, that's, it, it's really awesome when that exists. Um, so, um, that's, I'd say that's the number one thing is, you know, you have, you always have your alpha users, those people who really care about your product enough that they give you validation. You make, they make you feel like you're doing something that people care about. And also they're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt, you know, especially, um, after they come and they meet you and, and, you know, now all of a sudden they, they know the founders behind this company. Um, and, uh, their, you know, their ideas are being listened to incorporated into the product. So, uh, when you plug into, uh, to the ecosystem in that way, um, you know, you show that you're kind of a part of it, uh, um, in that way it, it does, it does foster, foster trust. And our first, very first clients, uh, that's, that's how they started using the, the company and, uh, so if I understood it correctly, your approach was first go after the, the enthusiastic, the, the close community, maybe the, it's the startup community or whatever it is that's, that's, you know, you can connect with quicker. And the se second thing you did is that, uh, you, you are a self-serve platform. Essentially, as you scale, mm -hmm. people go on on their own and create their own accounts, yeah. right? But at that yeah, early stage, right. you decided to do uh, more hand-holding. Hand full handholding. And not only, uh, that, that has a lot of, uh, different, uh, angles to it. Um, on one end, you're, you know, you have a few clients, so might as well delight them. You know, you might as well give it there, give it your all and make sure, and you know, make sure they, you give them the best journey that you can give them at the time, which, you know, that's an asterisk because the journey that you can give them at the time is usually somewhat very bumpy. And, you know, a lot of things are being, uh, plucked together behind the scenes. So you, you do that, you, you handhold them as much as possible. You, you're, uh, you take their feedback as, as much as possible. And when you do that, actually you're also benefiting because you're closer to the action. Um, you're, you know, the, myself trying to figure out, um, what do people, uh, you know, want out of this platform and what are the technical ramifications of this? And also what does this mean in terms of where this product is going or Nadine in terms of trying to understand what is this brand that we need to create? And you know, what is, what is a Sarwa from a marketing perspective and what marketing, uh, um, tactics and strategies work best. All of this, I mean, it's, you can study and you can make plans, but, uh, it's when you're in front of the action and talking to a client and getting that feedback, which you do when you handhold them. Um, that's when you can make those decisions much more quickly and you're, you're learning much more quickly about your own system and about your own business. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, especially at the beginning, I think uh, many founders underestimate the importance of you as a founder doing a lot of that customer support, doing, having a lot of hundred percent, hundred percent, especially I find for the technical founder as well. Um, for the technical founder as well, I find that's very underrated um, as a uh, the the level of involvement that's needed. I mean, you know, technicals, uh, sorry, uh, customer support is one way to do it and one thing that you need, but um, you need to be frontline to understand what you're building and to understand the solve the problems that you need to solve um, right away. Um, and you know, when you're building something new like that, you, you could kind of sit in your basement and, and come up with a plan for everything. But most of the time, you're not going to know exactly the best things to focus on, uh, as well as you would if you're in the front line and, and really uh, using your mind as much to understand from a product and business perspective as you are from a technical perspective. And I find that's very underrated for, um, you know, they, uh, from what I've seen, they're generally not as involved as they should be. Mm-hmm. Got it. And I want to talk a little bit about your audience and when you first started versus now, uh, we spoke a little bit about, you know, the millennial audience uh, in terms of investment, uh, especially initially and even now, who are your main um, competitors or is it, is it like a new audience that you're bringing in into investing or is it someone who, I don't know, maybe they're putting investing in stocks using Saxo bank or something else. Uh, and then you, you, you're converting them to, to you, et cetera. So how, how does your target audience split? Uh, who are you going after, uh, today as well? Yeah, I mean, um, I'd, I'd say it's evolved, you know, our understanding of our target audience, uh, at the beginning, we, you know, we thought of it as, um, millennials or uh, young professionals, but, um, I think that, you know, it's very rough and not a very, uh, you know, if you really look at it, it's not really a segment that's, that's that well-defined. Um, and so I, it sort of evolved more into understanding that, okay, there's, there's a few different types of investors. There's those that have never invested before, but, uh, basically they're, they're hungry to get into this. They know that it's important for them. Uh, and they just need to figure out the, the, the entry point, you know, which can be difficult if there's no, um, accessible service out there, uh, which, which was the case, uh, you know, in the, in the region before, before FinTech started getting, uh, getting going. Uh, so that's one target segment. Uh, and another target segment is no people who have invested before, um, who have either gotten burned by, um, whether it's, you know, uh, some of the many, uh, uh obscure investment, uh, companies of the, of the UAE or of the region, uh, or who, um, tried to do it themselves and couldn't, uh, you know, th- saw that it was a lot of work actually to be able to do it. Right. Um, so people who have dabbled in it, who have tried one way or another and sort of, um, found that it was, uh, it was either too difficult or too obscure. Um, and, uh, who, who still need to invest after that. So, um, those are sort of two segments that we found. Um, and you know, within those, it, it also goes into more granular levels uh, as well, of course. And, you know, you can have, uh, the, um, the, uh, pe- people who have their families who want to save up for the families or, um, those who want to just, 
you know, at the beginning of their career and save long-term. Um, it breaks down actually quite uh, nebulously, I'd say, across those markets and those different per personas. Um, but uh, the, the, the offering and the, I guess the bottom line of it is generally the same. And how do you make money today? What's your business model? Uh, so today the business model is essentially a percentage of assets under management, what we call assets under management, um, per year. So the idea is uh, you invest a certain amount of Sarwa, Sarwa uh, charges you a, a very small percentage of that every year. So the, uh, for us, it's a tiered pricing. So it starts at 0.85% uh, uh, and goes down to 0.5% uh, a year as, as you invest more. Um, so, and that's a good business model to have in general, like that's the best practice because it means that, um, you know, we're, we're as much a partners in, in your gains as in your losses. And if you're, um, we're also not encouraged to, uh, put you in any instrument over another. So, which, which is good because that shouldn't be something that we, um, we have, we have, I guess, interest in. Uh, our interest should be to put you in instruments that fit your um, risk profile um, and then make sure that you have the returns that, uh, that the best fit your, your risk profile. And that for us, you know, that business model makes, makes us aligned. You know, we're not just taking uh, bonuses from your gains and not participating in the losses. It's, you know, if, if you're making money, we're making money. If you're not where we make less money, basically. Yeah. This goes back to the trust, right? So linking your business. Absolutely. Model. Yes, and, and, and making it uh, also in the trust aspect, making it very simple and uh, very transparent, yeah. right? Uh, that's, that's something that in the UAE you'll find in the region, uh, this, you know, a lot of people will invest and not know really how the charges work. It's very difficult to know actually how the charges work. Um, and so you, there's, it's very, how do you trust something when you Especially can't understand the, how it's supposed bank. to work? <laughs> Especially yeah, with the there's uh yeah even there's even worse out there so definitely uh, a big part of it has this model changed or has it been the same from from the beginning no no actually that's been very stable yeah from yeah. from day one even even the how the tiers that you mentioned or these it's fluctuated barely i'd say really barely uh, fluctuated i don't know if they even fluctuated at all to be honest i think we've always had them more or less at this level. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, talking about the challenges side of things, uh, when it comes especially to operating in the region, uh, I know, you know, getting your license uh, in, in Dubai was probably one of the first things that was the sign that, okay, we can have a business at least to start with. Uh, yeah. But we live in a region where, and we were just talking, me and you a little bit about this before, we live in a region where the market, the the overall like sizable market is essentially like almost 20 countries. So you have like all these different countries that if you want to like actually operate in, um, mm -hmm. and benefit, and this applies to any startup and, and you know, talk to many startups that this is one of, was one of our challenges as well. So how are you tackling that challenge specifically that in your case, it's not just about, you know, going and opening an office or going and entering that market. It's about getting regulated. So you have to right. go through that whole bureaucratic, you know, step, uh, and, and you entering a market is dependent on that. And by the way, on that conversation, congrats on your, I, I, I know that you obtained your KSA license, right? 
and and congrats on that. Thank you, thank you, Ray. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's a huge point. Um, but I think the you know I think there's two sides to it. First off, I mean. You know, there's, there's as a startup in general, but there's also the parentheses of, uh, of, you know, in, uh, in retail fintech. So it's, uh, I think, okay. So I'm, I'm just mainly going to talk actually about, uh, how it applies to, to my business and what I know about it in my business. Um, first off, you can probably, uh, you know, when you're doing something new, uh, at least new, new in the region, like, uh, like we are, there's a lot that you can dig out of the same market. Um, so that shouldn't be underestimated actually. I mean, I think we barely even scratched the surface of the UAE as a market. Um, I think there's a lot of things that we can do, uh, a lot, of, a lot of things that we can offer more and, uh, you know, a lot of people that we have yet to reach. Um, so that's, that's on its own. Um, you know, that's kind of a, a I think a, a gold mine or a, you know, a market that, that has yet to be, um, that still is largely left unexplored and that can be, um, you know, that can be serviced much more basically. Um, and then after that, I mean, you know, obviously looking, um, expanding to, to the rest of the region, you know, is, is in the vision of the company and it's something that we care a lot about. And, uh, now with, uh, with Saudi on the horizon, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, like it, it's, it's materializing, but it's also something that we don't do lightly. Um, and I think that's just, that would be different or maybe a bit less applicable if you're not in a regulated industry, but still applicable nonetheless, whenever you need to do things differently between mark one market or, or another, um, that needs to be also factored in as a, um, you know, as, as something to, to keep in mind. Um, I mean, I guess the gist of it is, um, expansion is, is good, but, uh, you know, it can easily turn into, we, we, we've seen other players basically, you know, just expand a bit too rapidly, try to go global way too rapidly, uh, and then just be stuck with a completely incoherent system, completely incoherent product or operations, um, and, you know, weighed down enormously by this. So instead it's, it has to be kind of a very deliberate thing of moving to one market to another, I think, uh, especially in a regulated industry or anything where logistics kind of comes into play like that. Um, but the market is there. I mean, uh, we have, uh, it's true that it's not, you know, you could say it's not that many countries, but in the end it's, it's a, it's a huge part of the world, a huge part of the world that speaks the same language, um, which is huge, which is a big, big plus. I mean, there's, there aren't that many you know, there's what three different geographies where there's, uh, um, this kind of language that's so spread that everyone knows. Um, and that's, that's amazing. I mean, it means, it means you can reach a lot of people. So, uh, I would say the region is more encouraging than not, uh, on that front. Uh, of course, it depends on the kind of business that you run and the kind of service that you're offering. Definitely. And, uh, someone in the audience asking question about, uh, you know, how do, how do you deal with taxes? uh on on the gains and i guess that differs also based on the uh different markets that you're dealing with uh see probably taxes is one then currencies is another one so and probably it creates a lot of com complications on the tech side things for you in terms mm -hmm. of like capturing all these different things so yeah you can shed a bit of light on that yeah i mean so i mean on one side the uae for instance you know offers that benefit and that plus is that um 
you don't have a, a, a complex tax system or you know almost any tax system um, that you need to basically accommodate. So it does alleviate actually some of that, some of those issues when, when a lot of our, um, um, a lot of our clients, when the residents of the UAE, you know, it uh, alleviates their, uh, the need to, to, you know, to basically have someone on hand to help them out with that. Um, and we also, you know, you have to know your limits as a company. I mean, for us, uh, we know kind of what our obligations are. We know that on top of that, there's the things that we, the services that we want to provide to our clients because we know we can provide them well. And there's the things that we, you know, we know that uh, in the end, our client will need, will, will help out as much as we can, but our clients will also need to get professionals on their end. So for people who had, have complex, you know, tax situations, that's usually what we tell them. And uh, it's definitely better than, than, you know, trying to do too much and not doing it well. So that's on that front. Uh, then the currencies, uh, the currencies is its own thing, actually, because it's true that in the UAE, that's, uh, you know, it's, uh, um, it's one of those quirks of the market, but it's cool to have a quirk of the market like that because it means you can really personalize your product. It means you can localize it and, you know, start saying, okay, how can I make it better for, um, for this region that has this, you know, two currencies or this currency flying around or these many currencies flying around. So, um, that's something that we sort of, um, I think leaned on and leaned into. Um, so it does add a bit more, you know, you have to think about things a lot more because you have to, to think of, okay, but what about all these different currencies coming in and how are we going to deal with this and how are we going to deal with that? But once you solve these problems, you've created something, you've solved that problem for a lot of people and, uh, yeah. you know, it gives them all the more reasons to, use your platform and stay with it. Nice. Uh, I want to dig a little bit more detail on the tech side of things and the, and the product. Um, <laughs> how, how are you going about attracting talent, uh, technical talent in the region? Are you hiring from uh, within Dubai or are you hiring from uh, global and, and basically importing talent? Um, yeah, no, good question. I think, well, first off, in terms of uh, from where uh, hiring for me, it, um, I mean, we have our team in the UAE. So in general, um, you know, I look for people who want, who are willing to move to the UAE. Um, you know, but we, we've been very flexible with, uh, with also, you know, remote work, etc. Um, but in general, they don't have to be in the UAE. Of course they can be really anywhere. And, uh, you know, as long as they're, um, what matters more is, uh, you know, do they have the, the cultural fit? Do they have the, the technical skills? Do they have the, the potential, you know, the right mindset, et cetera. Um, and then after that, I mean, geography is really, uh, now, uh, you know, maybe in, uh, in COVID world, uh, um, I mean, you know, on one end, people were moving around a lot, you know, even before then, uh, uh you know, before, before the, 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 the pandemic and now, people who work remotely so well that it doesn't even matter anymore. So, um, certainly, you know, we have a worldwide view on that. Then to attract talent, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, uh, there's challenges that come with being a startup, especially, you know, when you're, when you're starting off, um, whether it's, uh, especially in the UAE, you know, some people's, you look at salaries, they can, they can be all over the place really. Yeah. Um, and that could definitely be a, a, a challenge. So what we, the approach that we've always took was, you know, we want to be competitive 
And we've, we've always worked to be competitive on, uh, on salary because in the end you need to make sure that, um, you know, I've, we've always thought that the people working for the company, including, you know, same mentality for ourselves, um, can't have people worried about their finances while they're working for you. I mean, it's completely counterproductive and it's not, uh, it's not ethical. Um, but beyond that, you, you know, once you're competitive, you have an edge that other companies don't when you're a startup and hopefully you're doing a startup and something that, um, that you care about and you know why you care about it. Uh, hopefully you're doing something that's, um, that's good. And that's, uh, you know, that's creating value to the world and that you're proud of, because, uh, if you are, then uh, you're, you will most likely find other people who, um, can relate and can feel the same way and can feel, uh, you know, people want to be proud of the work that they do. People want to work at a company where they're, they're proud of the end result and the end product and the impact that they're making. So that's definitely something that, um, I think every founder should ask themselves, you know, beyond financial compensation, why are they doing this? Uh, why do they enjoy this idea in particular? Why did they pick it? And hopefully they picked, you know, something that they can, uh, they can be proud of because they can transmit that sort of pride and, uh, and passion. So that's a big part of it. Another part of it is, um, you know, uh, so if you're a software engineer, you can go work at a, at a bank in general and you work at a bank, you probably will make more money than you will at other tech companies. But you know why you don't want to do it because you will be working in a, a bureaucracy that is very big. You'll be doing very, uh, narrow tasks. Uh, you likely, uh, will not get the culture of, uh, you know, of kind of, flexibility and quick problem solving and uh, creativity that you would get at a, at a tech company or a startup. Uh, conversely, on the other end of the spectrum where people who have startups and tech startups are, um, they have that luxury, which, you know, which is a double-edged sword. It comes with a lot of responsibility and work, but it's also a luxury to be able to wear so many different hats, have so much ownership of your work, you know, be, uh, uh, I mean, there's not one person uh, who works with uh, in our team today who uh, can afford not to be kind of, you know, engaged in their work and who doesn't make an impact just by being engaged in their work and by, by being an extra brain really of the company. Uh, you know, everyone wears a lot of different hats. Uh, people get to do a lot of interesting things and uh, their, yeah, their creativity and their, their, their mind matters. So um, that's something that a startup offers that not a lot of companies offer. So um just one, one last thing to close off on this. Um, I'd say, you know, if, uh, for founders, the most important thing is, uh, you know, see why you like your job and try to make your employees like their job for the same reasons and give them the reasons to like their job. Uh, basically, uh, you know, make it so that they're, uh, your, your, um, all the things that, that you enjoy, they should be able to enjoy it too. That's interesting. Yeah, starting from your own motivations and then trying to understand other your team's motivations as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a big part of leadership in general. And uh, on the products uh, specifically, um, first, what do you think was like one of your best features or additions to your product from, from when you started till today? Or your favorite? I don't know. You can pick one of, one of those two. It's a tough one. Um, it's a really tough one. I think, I mean, um, let's see. So my, I mean, 
definitely like the one that, uh, um, the one that had a massive impact and that, you know, once we finished it and we saw kind of its impact, we were very happy about it was we used to have a, just the most obnoxious onboarding, uh, for someone to go from registration to opening an account. And it was like, you know, you, a lot of forms and you know, things were not slick and, uh, it just seemed like such a chore to do it. Um, and at one point I think everyone, everyone on the team was fed up with this and we just sort of put in the, uh, the, the, the attention and the, the mental focus of a lot of people to try to see, okay, what do, what can we ask? What can we, what do we need to keep? What don't we need to keep? What do we need to move around? Uh, how can we make it so that it's, uh, this is around the time where, um, Becky, who's a designer that's working, who's the designer on our team started working with us. Um, you know, how can we make this like a really enjoyable journey? And a lot of basically, uh, brain power went into this, uh, and time to just thinking about this and, and, and conceptualizing it and putting it together. And, uh, it's probably the thing that boosted our conversion, uh, like single thing that boosted our conversion the most. Um, and also just, um, took our product from, you know, something that, <laughs> which repulsed us to almost to use to something that really delighted us. So I'd say that was, that was the biggest thing. Absolutely. That's very interesting as well, because I mean, onboarding generally, it's, it's not about the, the complexity of the tech. It's probably the, the least complex, but it's actually about simplification and, uh, and making mm -hmm. the process extremely simple for the users uh, yeah. and being able to get to that. Uh, it's very interesting that you say that as the, one, of the, one of the biggest features. It's extremely important. And it's something that I think a lot of founders and teams, uh, because you build your own product, so you kind of, get used to that process. You don't see it anymore. So you kind of have to like unsee it and then restart again as, as with, with a fresh eye on it. Uh, Very difficult to do. Do you believe in building in public? I mean, you spoke about uh, transparency and trust and all of that, and that's important for you. Uh, do you believe mm -hmm. in building in public and do you guys build in public? Um, I think we don't do it that much to be, to be fully honest. Um, I don't know how much I believe in it, to be honest. I think it does depend. Uh, there's probably like a good balance, right? Um, we do it as in we usually we pilot features in a certain way. Um, so we'll, we'll just pilot them just to see kind of, okay, are people using them? How are they using them? What are they looking for? Um, and, and we'll follow up on them in a very, you know, very, uh, hands-on basis. Um, so that, you know, we're not, investing early on in features that people don't want. And when they're out there, we're able to react quickly to yeah. basically make it evolve in the, in the right direction. Um, so I guess in, in some way we do do that, uh, you know, like building in public. But do you have um, any other stuff that's public, like your product roadmap or any of your metrics or any of that? Mm, I see what you mean. I don't think we do at the moment. I don't think we do right now. Um, maybe there's something that's not coming to mind, but um, in general, we'll, you know, we'll do it more in, uh, in close committee with some, you know, talking to some, uh, the clients that, that we have relationships with where we can really like, um, you know, yeah. basically we know, we know that they're targeted for this. We know that this would help them most. Uh, so we'll get that conversation rolling. We're thinking of doing this. Uh, what would you, you know, what do you think about this, et cetera? And we'll use their feedback, but, um, that's generally how we've approached it in the past. That can change. 
Uh, and how, how do you evaluate and decide on features, uh, especially technical features? You know, I mean, product roadmaps are usually uh, quite extensive and there's a lot of things in the pipeline. Uh, and one of the biggest challenges, probably work they have to do as a CTO and co-founder is prioritize you know, what, what happens next and what do we focus on next uh, when it comes to features and, and rolling yeah. out the things. So that's probably the hardest thing um, about uh, about well, uh, maybe I don't know. It's it's a really hard thing. Let's just say it's a really hard. Do you thing. have a methodology? Um, do you have a methodology that you follow with that? Like, if you were to just like think of, like, yeah, how- it's been evolving. It's been evolving as a methodology, and uh, it's something that you know we. I, I wouldn't say we figured out, but uh, it's we certainly are better at it now than we were before. Um, because there's so first off, if you want to strike the right balance, you want to be being aggressive and reaching, for, you know, reaching for new things and, and trying new things and not just, you know, incrementally doing what you've always been doing. You want to, to always be uh, looking for, you know, that, that next bet that's going to give you, uh, that's going to open new doors while at the same time being mindful that every new door you go through comes with a lot of, you know, like the follow-up and the work and the, and the maintenance, et cetera. It, you know, it's um, everything that, you know, once you go through that door, it, it will be, it will open up a lot more to do basically going after that. So there's a very delicate balance to find between um, what do you want to explore and what do you want to stay, steer away from? Um, I think it comes down to a having uh, a like a, a vision of what um, what are the big things that we want to achieve that are in line with what we've been doing right now. So um, a vision for the company, a vision for where you want to go going forward. Then after that, it's everything you want to sort of align things as much as possible. Um, the more things are aligned, the less um, the more lean you can stay. Um, and then, so right now we're starting to look at something, uh, starting to look at a new uh, way of, of prioritizing where uh, essentially it's, we, um, we take the time, some people on the team, the product team take the time to um, draw up ideas of here are, you know, things that we, we want to bet time on, we want to bet development time on, um, and then basically uh, coming together as a team and, and choosing which ones we think will have the most impact for the, um, for, and, and the most appetite to do them, you know, for the, for the budget, the time budget that we have. Um, and basically prioritizing them that way. It's a, it's a work in progress. I mean, there's a lot of different, uh, it's, it's a big, it's a big uh, topic. I think we can talk about it for hours. Um, yeah, it's a Sure. Very, very challenging. And I definitely will tell you that I, you know, we've done the, uh, we've had times where we've just stagnated by just, you know, kind of improving the same stuff over and over again and being optimizers rather than innovators. And other times where we've tried to do five different things at the same time and, and we were able to do one of them yeah. because, um, you know, we lost focus. So it's, it's really delicate. And, you know, it's at some point I, you know, you end up finding the, the, the right balance of what makes yeah. sense in terms of, uh, what to reach for. Yeah. And it's usually like a combination of many things. So 
you don't want to you want to add new features, but you don't want to overload the, the product with with new features. You want to keep it simple to use. At the same time, you have to balance between you know uh, you or others from the team or your co- each one like getting emotional about certain you know I don't know seeing a feature somewhere and they get excited about it and they want to do it or you see something and you want to do it. Then you have to go back to the like you said to the drawing board and see okay how much does this align with my vision what value is it creating true value creating to to customers and, and then decide you know where this falls on the roadmap yeah so a big a big part of that is also just having um a smaller more dedicated uh number of people or maybe even one person who is more of a product owner, you know, and more someone who is, okay, this person is product. Before it was more nebulous. And then we started really, um, you know, kind of whittling it down to who makes the decisions on the product. And then of course there's inputs from everywhere. I mean, whether it's operations or marketing or, or whatever, um, or tech, you know, everyone has inputs, but someone needs to basically think of, okay, how well does this really look materially? And do we want to do this? Um, so that, that needs to be a bit of a smaller, a smaller set of people or maybe even one person, that's a big one uh, in terms of uh, just making things coherent mm-hmm. and giving, direct, giving the right direction. And when it comes to, to growth hacking and growth in general, uh, what are certain things that worked for you? Um, can you recall any specific uh, moves that you guys did that really enabled you to kind of go on the trajectory of getting uh, a lot of new users on board? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's been there's been a lot of them. Definitely, one thing that uh, you know helped us a lot when we started off was um, just you know it was uh, fintech was a you know and still is a buzzword, something that people you know are very excited about. They want to see where it goes. Startups, same thing. Uh, so you know we uh, we we've all we've been fortunate in that. Um, there is interest in, in what we do. And so we've always tried to put ourselves out there in that, uh, in that sense, um, as a, you know, as a UAE homegrown company, as a company that's, um, you know, that's innovating on fronts that people find interesting and, you know, leveraging, I guess, the, the exposure that that gives us. And that's always, that's been very helpful uh, to us, especially in the early days. Um, that sort of press helps you in, in, in a lot of different ways also beyond just growth. Um, so there's that. There's also, I mean, we talked about just having the founders be uh, more on the front line. Um, so that uh, I think is a, is also a decent one when you're first starting off. I mean, it's uh, um, so what we would do, we would invite people to our offices and have a seminar. And then, uh, you know, you would have, we talk about uh, Sarwa and we, you know, um, um, I guess integrate in a, in a talk about just investing in general. And so you would have obviously all kinds of people. You would have people who were very skeptical about what we did or had their own opinion. But the cool thing about it is, uh, you're, you're a small company. So you're a founder. You can, you're on the front line. Um, in general, you've, you know, everything there is to know about your business and you're, you're extremely you know, well versed in your business. And so you can really, um, really be there and, you know, sell it in the right way, I guess, right? Uh, be that extremely well-informed uh, representative, representative of your of your company. Uh, and so that would, you know, those events would really, you know, we would see, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be like uh, um, huge numbers of people, but those people that would come would, would then- Become you know, customers. 
they become customers because you know they um, they got all their answers uh, questions answered, and they you know they were able to talk to the founders and really really uh, you know go deep in, in understanding the product. And when people once people understand their product, they they're much more likely to uh, to use it. Um, so I'd say those are two big things. Aside from that, I mean, there's uh, um, I can't really point to any one thing. I mean, we've tried a lot, we've done and tried a lot of different things that uh, yeah. um, uh, throughout the years. Uh, yeah, I can't. I don't really have How any one thing. That one thing you mentioned, which is on education specifically, educating your customers. Mm-hmm. Are you scaling that now that your you know your time as founder is more limited as you're growing? You have more customers that you need to talk to. How are you? You know, kind of continuing with that kind of like education, trust building approach. Uh, is it through content? Is it through, um, I don't know, virtual, uh, seminars or what, what, what are you doing? Uh, so it's, yeah, virtual, uh, webinars was a big one, uh, and still is a big one that we do. Um, and the content basically, uh, educational content is something that we've, um, uh, you know, we started doing, uh, early on and we, we just kept doing since then. So, um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say on that front, I mean, you, you scale it by, uh, you know, we scaled it by also by transmitting to the team, you know, like now it's, um, it can be founders, but it can be other people on the team who, who kind of, um, you know, do the same kind of interactions with, uh, with clients, whether in webinars now in webinars more, more generally. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's how we've been, we've been scaling those, uh, those human interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, on the last part, we're, we're almost out of, out of time. Uh, but the last part that I wanted to discuss is fundraising. Um, mm-hmm. First, how, how hard or easy has it been for you uh, to fundraise uh, and how long did it take you to, to fundraise as well? I think it uh, progressively starts taking longer and longer to fundraise. Um, we were lucky in that the, the early on, we sort of met investors that we, um, we vibed well with and who, who got the startup mentality, but also who got what we were trying to do and thought that it was, uh, you know, something that, that was very interesting to them. Um, so, uh, you know, for us, uh, Shuru, who was our lead investor, uh, in our seed round and then continued on with us in the many rounds, uh, rounds after that, um, you know, we were lucky in that we, we, we found people that we were able to, you know, really see eye to eye with about, um, about our business, about why, what makes it good about, um, um, you know, I guess the dynamics even of, uh, of, uh, um, of a startup. So that's, that's a big one. It's, it's, uh, that can be a bit, um, um, bit of a, a, a big search, right. To find those investors that, I mean, there are a lot of investors in the region. So it's not, it's not, that's not the, the, the main one. The main one is just finding the leads, you know, finding the, um, um, investor that gets what you're doing, likes what you're doing, gets you as a founder and that you also, um, you know, you want to work with them because, you know, if they are your lead investor, most likely they'll be on your board. Most likely they will have a lot to say. 
uh, about, about, uh, uh, you know, your business. So you want someone you can see eye to eye with, and that's not a, an easy search, I think in any market. Um, so that's, that's really the, you know, the, it takes a lot of time, uh, a lot of time. And, uh, for, you know, for Mark, when he did it last time, he, he led on the series a, and it was practically a full-time job of his, uh, for, for half a year. Um, so it, it does take a lot of time, but it's, uh, it's a necessary, uh, it's a necessary thing. And, um, I think, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one to say. It depends on a lot of different factors. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it can take, uh, you know, I'd say the, the, the best thing to do is to just, uh, start before you need it really start by just having conversations and making those contacts and seeing which one who, you know, who has the best shot at really being interested at, at what you're doing. Um, and keeping, uh, keeping it very wide while still focusing on, uh, on your potential leads. So you're saying that the, um, the, the, the first round was easier. You did, you did one round or have you done two rounds so far? So we did a seed round, a bridge round and a series A round. And as, as you went, did it get easier or did it get harder? It's hard to say. <laughs> it's hard to say. Um, I don't say, I don't think it ever gets got easy. Um, you know, there was always, yeah. you always have to, you know, get, getting people to, to part with their money, even in, into something that they believe in is never easy. But, um, I'd say the challenge is different. Um, you know, you have to prove different things at different points. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a hard one even to compare between the different funding rounds. The, the dynamic is different in terms of that being said, I'd say the first one is probably the hardest one because you're really going off of, um, you know, nothing you have, what, uh, only a prototype, no market, especially you know, all the things that you're, you're, you're a startup in FinTech. So, um, in a region that, uh, hasn't seen, mostly hasn't seen a product like yours before. So, um, a lot of people didn't believe in the idea. A lot of people didn't believe it would work in this market. A lot of people, um, thought that we needed a different kind of team to do it. You know, you have so many things to prove in the first round. It's, uh, the, that's why you need someone who believes in, in your idea and who believes in, um, in your ability to do it because those are the biggest two risks when you're first starting off. No one, uh, you don't have anything to prove, um, either of the two until you actually do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's, um, like the, yeah, at the beginning you have a lot of naysayers and, and it's because you don't have like traction or a lot of traction. Yeah. You don't have a full product. So essentially the, the vision and the team that, that, uh, the investors are, are buying into, uh, awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Judd. I think we've, we've reached the end of the conversation. Uh, congrats on all the, all the stuff that you guys have done, uh, over the years. Uh, it's very exciting. Uh, I've definitely been out there and, and, and people know about you guys and, and, and use your product. Uh, and thanks for joining the show and sharing your experiences, especially with other founders. And that's the, the aim of what we do uh, with Mete Conversations is that you know, a lot of current new founders coming in to, to basically learn at a localized level what you know, founders like you are a little bit ahead in terms of timeline. Uh, what they've learned and what they've done. Uh, and 
kind of, I mean, this is being on the podcast, one form of building in public, if you want. So you are doing it in one way or the other. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, uh, thank you for, for having me, Ray. And thank you for doing this too. Uh, you know, I think this kind of stuff is, uh, really valuable and helps a lot of people. And, uh, uh, one thing that, uh, you know, when we started off, we, we, we always thought was very valuable was whenever we could get that sort of uh, exchange of uh, ideas and experiences with other founders. It's just, uh, um, it's a, uh, it's a uh, food for the, for the entrepreneur's mind, I guess. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Hopefully we'll have you again on the show uh, later down the line. So you give us updates on what's going on. Uh, thank you. Safe flight back to the UAE. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.